0: Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Patricia Gallagher Newberry. She's an enterprise and watchdog reporter for the Cincinnati Enquirer, who began her journalism career as a student at the University of Nebraska in 1979. There's an interesting career path here, reporting until 1997, a transition to academia, being a professor at Miami of Ohio, where she was for 25 years, then retiring from that and back to reporting. It all comes full circle. Hi, thanks for joining us. Happy
1: to be here, Mark.
0: So take us back to 1979 and maybe before that. Uh, What's your journalism origin story?
1: Oh, thanks so much. Uh, that's so long ago. <laughs> I was, you know, the the usual kind of story. I liked to write when I was a kid. I was identified as being a good writer. I was oppositional and uh, skeptical. And so those kinds of things came together nicely that I like to ask a lot of questions and maybe get under people's skin. And so writing and and doing that, asking questions came together. I started the high school path yearbook when i got to college it was the it was the main thing i wanted to do i started at the campus newspaper in the first month of school and just kept going in that direction you know all my all my years in college on the student newspaper for four or five internships and then you know went right into the industry so never looked back it just seemed like the right fit for me i know a lot of our young people struggle to find their way that was not my experience
0: was there anything in your family or your heritage that relates to storytelling that would have maybe foreshadowed this?
1: I'm Irish. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the gift of gab, I was always, you know, a pretty good talker, but no, no family allegiance here. In fact, my father, a strong Republican, I think he was a bit skeptical of the world of news. He still loved me, but he, he was would put, <laughs> raise his eyebrows to some of the things I wanted to uh, report about.
0: Give us uh, one example from, ni- from 1979, 80, somewhere in that range of something that you remember that stands out that like that someone that's, you know, in their 20s right now would have no grasp of like a phrase or or just anything.
1: I do remember a professor who gave me a tip that turned into a really good story back then you know the idea of database reporting or investigative reporting sound very foreign and very scary and very you know big world and beyond my nebraska roots but he showed me where to find a particular document that was a record of the spending of some nonprofit long lost to memory that just it was interesting and raised some questions about this nonprofit's uh, i think it was the ratio of of spending on nonprofits to salaries or office expenses or something like that. And, uh, and so, you know, digging up a document that my professor turned me on to turned out to be a pretty good story. It won me a Hearst Award, got me a trip to San Francisco. So it was all very heady and very exciting. So my lesson there is listen to your professors. If they have a story tip, it probably is
0: going to pay off. Sounds like someone who was recently in academia. Um, (laughs) You had a fair number of newspaper stops. Um, Can you just give us, rather than really diving into any one of them, can you give us like three highlights from the initial part of your reporting career?
1: Um, The highlight would be that I said yes to a lot of things. Uh, My first job, I left Nebraska. I went to Colorado for six months. I didn't know what I was doing. I left that job after six months said yes to the next thing, which was a quick minute outside of journalism in politics, but that was helpful to kind of inform what I didn't want to do. And then from there, went to the Indianapolis News, RIP to the news, and started in the world of business reporting or continued in the world of business reporting, which I then went to Cincinnati and did it for seven and a half years. So kind of the glue there is... You know, saying yes to a lot of opportunities moving from place to place. And also, I jumped into business reporting from the get go, which certainly was not my intent, but it was the first job offered to me and ended up really enjoying and getting pretty good at business reporting um, as a young person. And I think it really served me well to understand budgets and not be fearful of looking at numbers and understanding where documents live you know, back then, of course, you had to get them in the mail. You had a, my husband actually bought me shares in two of the companies I covered so I could get the filings. This is pre-internet and pre, you know, easy access to things. So I could get all the SEC documents. I, I signed, you know, I, I had a couple shares in Procter & Gamble and Kroger company. So the glue is take a chance and find a specialty maybe would be one other lesson um, because, you know, as you move from outlet to outlet, you get better at it.
0: So business reporting circa that time period, what are the differences then to now?
1: Uh, far bigger staffs. So this was kind of the heyday, the, the boom in business reporting. I worked ultimately for a staff that was 12 or 13 people at the Cincinnati Enquirer covering business. It was big enough that we all had kind of subspecialties. So I was consumer goods. And advertising marketing were my, and now in my return to the Cincinnati Enquirer, there are, there's really one designated business reporter and others who do occasional business stories. So there was a moment in time in the early eighties when every American newspaper was really staffing up, bulking up their staffs, covering business. Some of it was probably pretty lightweight, but nonetheless, they, they put us to work and they paid us.
0: I remember it. As a kid, certainly very well, certainly got, got me pushed in the direction of newspapering. Why did you transition to academia?
1: That was accidental. I never envisioned myself in academia. My last stop in daily journalism before my current job was in Chicago. I had some health problems that actually took me out of the game, and they were journalism-induced health problems. Um, It was repetitive strain injury in my hands. All All my upper extremities were just totally inflamed. And I could not, despite many efforts, medical efforts, I could not get my body to get out of a pain situation. So after taking this fantastic job at Crane's Chicago Business, I had to resign and just let my body heal, which it did. And long story short, we ended up coming back to Cincinnati. Then I had two children and going back into daily journalism just did not seem like the right thing to do for my family and my health. And so just as luck would have it, there was an opening at Miami University, part-time, two and a half years part-time, turned into a full 25-year stay at the institution despite not having the advanced degrees and the, the kind of academic training. But um, when I left, I was running the program. So it worked out pretty well.
0: So when I went on your website, uh, I saw references to classes and programs and trips that you created uh, from scratch. Uh, what were some of the, the highlights of those?
1: Yeah, uh, that was one of the great parts of the job because I was not a tenured member of faculty. I did as many things as I could to keep myself um, relevant and to have good experiences, and I had a boss at the time that was very entrepreneurial, so that was a, you know, happy marriage of my interests and his needs. I went twice to Cuba. I taught twice with our Washington program. I created a lot of, you know, campus courses, business reporting, depth reporting, investigative reporting. That I taught, you know, as often as I could get somebody to green light it. Um, but probably my best experience was creating our our New York travel class, which I called NYC Media. Ended up doing that seven times. That was pretty much um, killed by the pandemic. But between a dozen and 18 students would enroll every winter term. We'd be there on the ground for a full week and squeeze in as many media stops as we can, could. Uh, and so basically I built that on the backs of our alumni network and other people that I'd met along the way, or or just you know, did a random cold call to, and they said yes. So we went to CNN, we went to all the networks, we went to the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, uh, a bunch of different magazines and websites. The New York Times was probably the headiest and and that one, I mean, for example, you know, you just keep leveraging your relationships, which is a lesson for all journalists. We had, I had in my role at Miami University, been in charge of guests and, and you know, programs. And we had the, we had the outgoing executive editor of the New York Times come to campus, Bill Keller. We paid him a nice speaker's fee. And so when I wanted to build the New York class, he was among my first emails. Hey, Bill, remember me? We paid you a lot of money. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to welcome students to your newsroom? So that was a, a great experience. It was super fun. The students learned a lot. They, they really got into the class. But as I said, the last time we did it was pre-pandemic January of 2020. And after that, there was a long pandemic pause because newsrooms, as we know them, are just not the same, and, you know, welcoming uh, a random group of Ohio students to the New York Times was really not going to be happening anytime soon, so, and then, of course, I departed in, in 2022, so.
0: Yep, and, and now back to reporting with, with the Inquirer. So, you're someone that I, I mentioned, A, you could have, you could have stayed in academia, B, could have retired. Why back to this?
1: I think I had a pandemic awakening, one of those moments where I just asked myself, is this it? Will I just end my my day, my working life teaching the same classes? I, I loved academia. I am not at all gonna dump on academia. It was a fantastic way to spend 25 years. It allowed me great flexibility to have a schedule that allowed me to be an active parent. But there is a level of repetitive repetitiveness (laughs) right you are building the wheel from scratch semester after semester and that can be taxing so even though you know i really enjoyed starting new things there was a sameness to it and i just really really it was just for me is this it is this it for me could i ever go back to journalism and quite frankly i never thought that journalism would take back someone you know my 25 years out of the industry is like a lifetime. You might as well be talking about the prehistoric dinosaur ages because you know I <laughs> I left before there was an internet. I left before, you know, email was in its infancy when I started teaching. So there had been this you know great change in the industry on every conceivable level. and I thought, well, there's no way they would anyone would take me back and and then it happened. and you know to my great surprise and delight, I'm back.
0: How did you order. how did you convince them?
1: Right? How did I convince them? Well, number one, I remained active as a freelancer. So it's not as though I had stepped out of journalism completely. I yep. but you know, I did one or two piece, two bigger pieces a year for usually for a magazine. i I had I still had relationships with people in the newsroom. I invited those journalists to campus frequently to, you know, be guest lecturers. I called on them. I stayed connected with them through the Society of Professional Journalists. I never burned those bridges, which I think is another good lesson for all, all journalists, you know, keep your relationships healthy. And, you know, beyond that, I don't know how I convinced them. <laughs> I It was a very quick and kind of seamless uh, process. I never even had a face to face with the editor in chief. We did it all over the phone. I had lunch with the number two editor and the person who is now my my editor and one and one reporter on staff. And from there, I got the offer. So that's it. I mean, not not dramatic, but they took me back and couldn't be happier.
0: Well. Wow some examples of things you covered you've covered the debate over a new bridge i saw that was a fairly recent story the plans for harriet beecher stowe's house which i believe is being turned into is being developed further as a museum and then a story about a family that opened its home to ukrainian families i'm curious how do you come up with your story ideas
1: right those are all kind of random so my title is enterprise slash watchdog yep so Mostly, I'm asked to cover stories that look at the use of public funds. So, a couple of the ones you just mentioned: the Harriet Beecher Stowe House yep. has some amount of public funding. The Ukrainian one is completely a one-off, just because I have some interest in in Ukraine, and of course, very concerned about the war, as we all are. The bridge story has been a big. A big part of my duties, I'm I'm the transportation reporter in you know generally, and the biggest story going in Cincinnati, among the biggest stories going uh, in transportation in Cincinnati, is a 3.6 billion dollar bridge project over the Ohio River, literally running from Florida to Canada, as we say in many stories. Uh, so that's a giant, giant uh, project in Greater Cincinnati that's going to have impacts for the next you know for the next generation truly um, so those have been interesting and fun um how do I how do I find story ideas? I think you know when I talk about my my skills feeling like my skills were stale, what's not stale is recognizing news when you see it and hear it, reporting it out and writing it right So the fundamental skills of journalism have not really changed over 25 years. You have to do, There's a lot of technological, you know, technical aspects to the job that I had to get my school myself on. But, you know, hearing a good story idea and chasing it is still is still the bread and butter. Uh, And then the other big story that I was on in 2022 was the coverage of a a murder trial, and I can tell you about that if you want to hear.
0: It. Yeah, I, I had a I have a few uh, questions related to that. Let me stay with the the three that I brought up, and I know you said it was a one-off, but the Ukrainian family story. How does something like that? How did something like that come about? And then I just thought like there were certain things in that story that were particularly cool, like the picture of the loaf of bread, and I'm curious how involved are you in in things like. Hey, we, should, we we could use a shot of that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, sure. that's a nice example. so i'm in, I'm interested in Ukraine because one of my daughters took a trip to Ukraine as a as a grade school student of all things in a in a very innovative exchange program. And so I'm friends with the principal of that school, and now he's in a role in Greater Cincinnati to uh, assist Ukrainians who come to greater Cincinnati. So I literally called up Bob, my friend, Hey, Bob, I want to do a story on somebody in greater Cincinnati from Ukraine came here specifically to um, escape the war. And so through a person, a person, a person, right, I finally connected with the couple and their two young sons who were brought who are here and building this new life. How involved am I in the the photos well it's very collaborative right so i i went and met the mother of the family first by myself just to kind of feel her out understand her level of of english skill because it's very hard to do a full a, a meaningful interview with interpretation and so kind of got the basic outlines of what their family had gone through and and made sure she was going to be comfortable answering the questions, right? Because when you first meet someone to ask them personal questions about fleeing their home country and she was great. And, and so we made an appointment to come back and came back with a photographer and no, you know what? I didn't come back with the photographer. I did the interview alone, but we talked about how they're keeping their family traditions alive and one of the things she said is that every Sunday, her husband bakes Ukrainian bread because they don't like the bread they can get <laughs> in the grocery store in our area. Uh, it's too soft and squishy, and they like a more dense, you know, European bread. And so that's why we, you know, I asked the photographer to to picture the bread. And that was challenging because I think they eat the bread right away. And they're, <laughs> I think they may have even baked another loaf just because I asked about it (laughs) and said we were going to send a photographer and could we picture the bread? (laughs) So it
0: it really stands out in the story uh, um, uh, among, you know, as a, as a, hey, be kind of like we can visualize this. Um, all right. So you mentioned that you cover courts. Um, and in the 130 episodes we've done, I think I've only talked to one or two reporters that cover courts intensely. So let's, let's talk about that for a second. Uh, one murder trial uh, that you covered, it was a big one. Uh, eight people in a family, uh, the Roden family that was murdered. A slew of people in another family, the Wagner family that was charged. It wasn't a gang thing. It was one family thought members of the other family We're molesting a young child. There's going to be a lot of trials with this. One of them lasted three months. You covered it. What's the experience of doing a story of that nature like?
1: It was exhausting, but necessary. I felt privileged, actually, that the Enquirer allowed me to do it and that they kept me there for the duration. Our coverage was feeding all of the I don't know, 17 or 18 Gannett newspapers throughout the state of Ohio. There was a high interest in the the story. So I really credit my employer for keeping me there, keeping a photographer there for the entire time. Our photographer served as the pool photographer for all of the journalists. There were typically eight or so journalists who regularly were in the courtroom. Um, I had never covered, Mark, I had never covered a trial. And uh-huh. my very first trial then is this gigantic murder trial. But I was familiar with dockets, definitely had used court dockets for other stories that I had written, uh, both when I was a working journalist before and and as a freelancer and in the court, or excuse me, in the classroom. Um, I really wanted students to know about public documents and where you can get them and how rich they are. Court documents in particular can be quite rich. And so I would always have them look up documents to understand what was in them and how to take that to, you know, fan their reporting. So um, it was, you know, some people ask, isn't it traumatic to sit in a courtroom and and cover something of that nature? And it's like, well, I mean, it was awful. It was horrifying, but traumatized. No, these are not my family members. It's not my crime. i feel you know desperately awful for the family who got whose eight members were killed but yeah not my trauma and as i've said you know i left my trauma on the page i i wrote it i and then i moved on to the next story so again i just feel it was a privilege to have covered it. I think it's an important story, and I am probably going to be covering the next one, the patriarch of the family who's supposed to go on trial in the spring.
0: Did you do anything to manage your mental health with regards to that?
1: Not really, but maybe talk therapy would be the closest, meaning I told the people in my life about what was going on in the courtroom Certainly my husband, my children, to the extent they wanted, my adult children, to the extent that they wanted to hear about it. I have some I have friends who are lawyers and they were fascinated and wanted to hear, you know, every wrinkle. And so I guess in that regard, I was able to to talk it out and kind of talk about just how awful the crime was and how awful the autopsy photos shown in the courtroom were. So I think that was helpful.
0: Is there a certain way that the Inquirer likes, or I guess the Gannett papers in general, like stories like that written so that they're easy to read?
1: Well, it being my first experience, I don't know that we have a a formula um, per se, but my goal with the coverage was to have at least one longer takeout per week that was either a preview of what was going to come next or a wrap up of important events that just happened rather than blow by blow days of testimony we didn't do that much of the blow by blow we did for important witnesses but otherwise i would i would tweet those out which was actually a really handy way to have a record of what was said in the courtroom because I'd already synthesized it. I'd already picked the most important quotes and, and moments. And then if I was doing the wrap up, well, I just went back to my own Twitter feed and read my thread <laughs> and, could, you know, remake that into
0: a story. Yeah, I feel like I've seen a, a number of reporters who do that nowadays with their uh, trial reporting. All right. So as someone who did it for the first time, what experience would you would an experience or advice would you pass on to someone else who was doing it for the first time? Like what's something that someone should know that they might not have known, if, you know, going into a first time covering uh, a trial or a trial of significance?
1: I think having uh, a pretty detailed conversation with your boss or whoever's going to be your editor on the on the coverage would be helpful. We didn't really do that. Um, I was I was assigned the story very late in the game. And truly, I I had very little ramp up time. And so that would have been more helpful. <laughs> and then we were just off to the races and we never really, you know, I was working 12 hour days and we just never really paused to go, what are we doing here? I would just pitch an angle. The editor would say, this sounds great. Let's do it. Can you get that for Thursday? Yeah, I've, you know, <laughs> and just kind of running and gunning the whole time. And so I've already had the conversation with, our number two editor on the next trial that we're going to talk more before we go in. We're going to do less of the incremental stuff, beyond on the ground, fewer days. But it, it, some of that stuff is hard to predict because, you know, a trial, it's not like the prosecution takes you aside and tells you, hey, this is what we're doing today. Oh, here's the plan for the week. So you can, <laughs> you, you plan your own week. I mean, you just have to be there or not be there, be there and and get it and decide or take the risk and skip a day and maybe miss something big. So it's, it's a challenge. And I wish I'd had more opportunity or, you know, I could probably should have pushed it with the editor I was working with at the time to have um, more of those conversations.
0: Another uh, story that you did, this isn't necessarily a trial, but when I think Enter of like the word enterprise and the kinds of stories that you might do of that. I was thinking of something like a piece that you did in April about the 30th anniversary of a prison riot that resulted in the death of a prison guard. 30 years later, those still facing the death penalty say they're innocent. How do you ensure that you're telling a complete story in doing a project like that?
1: That's challenging. Number one is a 30-year-old case. Happily, the prosecutor was still around. And willing to give me a pretty, pretty uh, full-throated interview, so that was fortunate that he was willing to defend his decisions uh, at the time. So you have the five men in their copia- the five men who were accused of the killing of the guard, not accused of, convicted of the death of the guard and of nine other inmates, all saying it wasn't us, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, five times, all of them. Right? They're all, you know. <laughs> our prisons are full of innocent people, right? (laughs) Being facetious. And then on the other hand, you have the prosecutor saying, you know, yeah, it was a messy case. We did the best we can. We, we, we put together our cases based on inmate testimony. There wasn't much physical evidence. So I used a lot of, uh, of archival coverage, you know, how did we cover it back in the day? What were the For many readers, I think it was maybe uh, a review of something they knew a lot about, but for younger readers, those who are, you know, in their forties or so, it probably was all new information. Like, what? There was a prison riot? I didn't know about that. I didn't know about, you know, the details of it. And the other thing that I found most interesting, you know, seeking balance and so forth, there was one dude who was mentioned many times as being a pivotal player, and he somehow cut a deal, and he was moved out of the state of Ohio. I got some intimation about where he was, but not strong enough that I could put it in the story. And he's now a free man. He's out on the street. And you have five others who say they didn't do it. And, you know, but I couldn't find the dude who's walking free, right? I tried many different angles to find him. That would have been a really, that would have been a very different story if I'd found him and he was willing to be interviewed. So- You know, journalism is the art of possibility. You you go in with as many angles as you can think of, and then come deadline, it's what do you have in hand and what can you make of
0: it? What kinds of stories you, we've gone through a lot of different types, what kind of stories you most like writing?
1: I love uh, criminal justice stuff. I love court records. I would like to do more glimpses of people's humanity. (laughs) <laughs> but that doesn't as often, you know, involve tax dollars. So that's well,
0: that's the uh, Ukraine story. Though.
1: Yeah, that's the Ukraine story. Yep. I, I might do another Ukrainian story. I don't know. I, I, I love everything I'm doing right now. I'm doing a I just turned in a story that runs tomorrow on a likely library levy. Now, some people might go, you know, shoot me. That sounds so awful. But I think that's really fascinating. And we have it first. So to me, right. that's that's pretty interesting that the library levy might go up 68% or 116%. And wow. those aren't figures that the library handed me. Those are things that I dug out of their their public documents. I'm working on another piece about our parks system, which is much, you know, much elevated. It gets lots of awards, but it also has more than $70 million worth of deferred maintenance. And that's a story that's never been told. They only have a budget of $22 million. How are they ever going to find 70 million to clear all their maintenance needs? So stories like that, I think are really interesting. And it's my goal to, you know, find a way into them that make a reader care about them, trying to find some human voices to, you know, bring the various facts and figures alive.
0: What is the process of writing like for you?
1: I am an exhaustive reporter. And so the writing is fine. If I feel the writing is good and flows very quickly. So long as I feel as though I have reported everything, I, I just can't start writing until I feel like <laughs> I've you know got it all. And then I have to take it all and squeeze it down. Right. Cause you can't report it all. Every story ha- needs a, a path. So I end up with most stories. I end up with a fat folder full of notes and printouts and things I've highlighted and interviews and then I map it out. I literally do a little outline for myself, and I tend to write and think in chunks. Right? So I've got my lead that's going to be about 10 paragraphs, and then I'm going to have a subhead and a photo, and then I've got background, and then I've got another, you know, so I, I really do think in chunks. And I think about length from the very beginning because we. I talk with my editor, is this a thousand word story? Can I get away with 2,000? <laughs> he <laughs> doesn't like, he doesn't like, I've had a few 2,500 and 3,000 word stories, but um, that's getting pretty long and we lose readers. And I understand that. So I do think, you know, I've got all this material. How do I squeeze it down to the most interesting and newsworthy elements that I can kind of almost chapterize, right? Here's a little chapter on the history. Here's a little chapter on the key player in this debate. Here's the, you know, so that's the way I tend to write. And then you always got to save something good for the end, right? <laughs> the kick, Get the kicker, um, yep. go out with a, a strong anecdote or a strong quote, uh, and then boom, you're done. So the writing is not hard for me so long as I feel as though I have covered everything in my reporting that I'm not going to stumble about upon something as I write like, oh my God, I should have, oh, yeah, and have to
0: start <laughs> over. You know? I, so, I know the feeling. Yep. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. This is the first time it's come up in 130 episodes. Did the, hand, the issues with the hands and the repetitive strain ever come back? And how have you managed that?
1: Um, thanks for asking. They did dim after about 18 months. I finally had a, a release of my pain. And they did come back once for a few months, a number of years later. Now, if I have a heavy a heavy mouse day, meaning I'm doing a lot of searching instead of writing, writing spreads out the, the pressure on my hands to 10 digits, right? Mousing puts it all in one hand. So if I have a heavy mouse day, I, that's also going to be a heavy Advil day. And I'm going to try to remember to um, take breaks and, and get away from the computer. So yeah, the health is good, but I think that's something that journalists should always be aware of, right? Their posture at the keyboard, the ergonomics, have a good chair, all those things might sound like old lady advice, and I am an old lady, but you know what? You got to protect your body because it's the only one you have, and we use our bodies as journalists in a lot of ways, including sitting for far too long in front of screens.
0: It's a physically taxing job as someone who has a ergonomic mouse, a uh, sitting on a cushion, uh, a pad in the back. Uh, I have learned many lessons uh, about that. And it's interesting to talk to someone who's had uh, experiences as well. A uh, couple of questions just to wrap up. How do you view your role uh, as a journalist in 2023?
1: The news business, of course, is very different than the one I entered in 1980 ish. It's much smaller, it's much more condensed. We have to pick and choose our stories we can't cover everything even our very able city hall reporter has to pick and choose which which stories are worth her time and it's very metrics driven and i think the journalist of today has to accept that and not complain about it if you don't if you don't attract an audience if you're not getting page views and in our case subscriptions then really, what are you spending your time on, right? And that, that doesn't offend me. Sometimes I do a story and it doesn't do very well. And it's like, yeah, okay, I gave that one a try. I mean, I did a very small story recently, an interview with Dimitri Martin, the comic, because I love Dimitri Martin and the entertainment editor said I could do it. But for a variety of reasons, it came in late. I got the interview late. It came in late. We didn't push it very hard, blah, blah, blah. The editor was on vacation or was off that day or something. And so it didn't do very well. It's like, well, I still got to interview Dimitri Martin for all the Dimitri Martin fans. You know,
0: <laughs> so, Is there a reason that you feel optimistic about the future of the job and the profession?
1: Journalism will always be necessary for democracy. And here's where I put on my professor's hat and talk highfalutin there is a first amendment that protects our right along with the public's right to know there are laws that are that secure those rights and it i mean it's just an essential part of our democracy and i think part of the human experience we desire to know whether it's what's happening in your kids school your local church or City Hall or the halls of Congress. We wanna know what the power brokers are up to, what they're doing. And so uh, I I am a Pollyanna on this question. I think that journalism will continue to exist. I think the contraction is mostly squeezed out of the business. We're already down to you know the skeleton of the business. I think we'll continue to see niche sites popping up to continue to serve communities in various ways. So I am optimistic, and I think it is a great profession, and that's what I said for 25 years in the classroom. I encourage students to school their parents. Tell them, yes, they can get jobs in journalism. (laughs) Anything is possible, and there are jobs out there. they are different jobs than the one I walked into as a you know, a college graduate in 1983, but there are still jobs and there are still people very dedicated. And, you know, I read the good stuff all the time. I read the Pulitzer winners. I I read the SDX winners. I, I am optimistic. It's, you know, the, the New York Times is doing gangbusters. They're growing. So th- I think there's a lot of reason for optimism, despite, of course, the bad news, the layoffs, the, you know, the sales, I'm worried about the San Diego folks right now with the sale yep. of their or the uh, announcement yep. that they're going to be sold. Yeah. But I, I remain hopeful and optimistic that journalism will continue to be an essential part of our democracy.
0: And last question the show's called the Journalism Salute. We're saluting you for your good work, and we ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work?
1: Well, thank you. I'm going to give. Give out a shout out to uh, Society of Professional Journalists. I've been affiliated with it since I was an undergrad. I've worked in every level of the volunteer organization, uh, including as the national president in 2019-20. So I was the first pandemic president. (laughs) And it's an organization that really does a yeoman's job of representing journalists, protecting and promoting the profession. And everybody should join SPJ.
0: Nice. All right. Patricia Gallagher-Newberry, thank you for taking the time to join us uh, and educate us. Best of luck uh, in your future work.
1: Thanks very much, Mark. Great to talk with you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod. And you can email us at Salute at gmail.com.